on the outside, kind of left out, kind of excluded for whatever reason. Maybe it's a different culture, different customs, different traditions. We just don't know quite how to act. We're trying to read the cues from everybody else to see how we ought to behave. If you've ever felt like that, that, that feeling of being alone, maybe being awkward, just being on the outside, being left out, then you have a glimpse into how the Gentile Christians would have felt. Donnie did a great job last week kind of walking us through Ephesians uh, 2, 4 through 10. It's just this glorious passage of how Jesus rescued us for good works. Good works that God prepared in, in advance that we should walk in them. Not just volunteers, but to be masterpieces on mission to display his glory. And all those good works that, that Paul's talking about, no person in the first, church, first century church reads that, hears that, and thinks, oh, Maybe I can be an usher. Maybe I can serve in the youth ministry or the children's ministry or, or the music ministry or anything. Nobody reads that. Why? Because they didn't even have those ministries then. No, every, everybody, they hear that, read, they read that, they understand that, and they know that these works that God has called us to are not church on, uh, uh, stuff to do on church property, but it's stuff to do out in community, to go and to, to meet people where they're at, to make disciples. Th th these are the good works that we've called to. This is the training ground here. This is the practice ground where we get to kind of put our gifts to the test and see God use them to build up one another so that then we are the sent ones, sent out to do what he's called us to do. And so now we're kind of turning our attention to verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2. You can go ahead and turn there, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And Paul, in this section, turns his attention to the Gentile Christians because they are the ones who would feel left out. They're the ones who might feel excluded, might feel a little awkward on the outside looking in. They're the ones who walk into the cafeteria with, with their tray and they're looking around and they're thinking, I don't know if I belong here. Everybody else is talking and laughing and having a good time, but I don't even know if there's really a, a seat at the table here for me. Paul wants them to understand that God has saved you too. That God has included you too. And in fact, it's one family. And this seems far-fetched to this group. Maybe it seems far-fetched to you too. That God has predestined you for good works, to be everyday missionaries, to impact people all over our culture. Well, be encouraged this morning. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Let's read it together. Paul writes... Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Imagine just being slandered by the spiritual elites, right? All these people, they seem to have their act together and they're looking down their noses at you. These people who claim to know God and have this intimate, special relationship with God and you're walking by and they think that you're less than, that you you don't deserve to be along. See, this is how it would have been for the Gentiles all, all along, Paul even uses this term, this derogatory term that they would have heard so often, the uncircumcision. That might not be offensive to you today, but it sure was offensive back then because the Gentiles, they knew what that term meant. They knew what the Jews were saying when they used that, that derogatory term. It meant they weren't one of them, that they weren't that they were cut off. I mean, you see the practice of circumcision, it was used in Old Testament times by the Jews to indicate this special relationship between them and God. God initiated this practice as a covenant sign um, for the basic reason that our sexuality is a basic part of our humanity. And so, so God initiates this, this sign. And so when the Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcision, it carries so many innuendos. And the Gentiles know what the Jews are saying. It meant that they didn't belong to God. It referred to just the prevalence of sexual immorality that ran rampant throughout the Gentile world. It also looked down upon the Gentiles because they lived their lives in religious ignorance. They didn't know God the way the Jews did. The scriptures teach that you can't even really know yourself until you know God. Because the one who created you knows you best. The one who made you knows what you're made for. The good works that he prepared in advance for you to walk in them. You don't know them until you know him. And God reveals that to you. But, but the Gentiles, they're cut off from all that. And the Jews, they're not being the light that they were called to be. You know, the Jews, they were called to be the light to all the other nations. But they weren't. Instead, they're just looking down their noses at everybody else. They think that they're superior. As if it's them who've done anything. God chose them to be the special nation. They didn't choose themselves. And so here's the Jews. that They placed themselves in the seat of spiritual uh, superiority. And you talk about being the awkward person in the room. Here comes the Gentiles. And they walk in and they're just looking for a seat at the table. And just imagine not being wanted. Not being invited. Being snubbed. Having that derogatory name just set about you behind your back, maybe even right in front of you. And now, God, he's trying to make one body out of these two groups? I mean, do do you see the challenge here? Look at how Paul describes the Gentiles. He says that they're called the uncircumcision. You you get this hint of, of Jewish advantage because the Jews are called the circumcision. And so there's this advantage that the Jews have, you see in verse 11, in verse 12. But those advantages, they reveal the Jews' own hypocrisy. I mean, they're they're telling themselves that they're better. They're telling themselves that they're good while the Gentiles aren't. But this is a sign done by human hands of men to prove that they were special. And yes, the Jews had advantages. They had advantages over the Gentiles. They were circumcised, indicating this special relationship that they did have with God. 
But the problem is they didn't act like the circumcised. And this made this divide for the Gentiles even more difficult because here are the people who are supposed to be godly, but they're not. Here are the people who are supposed to represent God the way God would represent himself, but they're not. And so Paul, he describes this divide. And he says, remember, Gentiles, that at that time, before Christ, you were separated from God. You were, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants. You were ultimately without hope and without God. You felt ostracized and you were ostracized. I mean, he, he just goes through and he lets them know they, they lived in open just openly idolatrous, immoral, self-centered culture, and they were a part of it. They created it. But you go back to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, and Paul lets the Jews know too, hey, don't think you're so good, because all of humanity is in this lot. All of humanity is spiritually dead apart from Jesus. But the bad thing for the Gentiles is they don't even have the advantages that the Jews did. And, you know, whether it's first century Rome or 21st century America, without Christ, we're all separated. All separated from God. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. It doesn't matter if you go to church. It doesn't matter if you're witty, intelligent, artistic, well-read. It doesn't matter. If you don't know Jesus, you're separated from God. And it's a tragic thing to be separated from God. To not really know him, to not really know yourself, who you're called to. You may know the stories of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. You may know the love of Jesus. You may admire his courage and his compassion. But if you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus alone to be made right with God, then you're separated from God. And there's this gap that exists, and it is the death gap. Because you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. And that's what Paul's getting at. That you're still following the prince of the power of the air, the, the world, and you've yet to experience this grace that's freely given by God and Jesus. is made possible by a faith that's not even of yourself. It's a gift of God. And the life and the meaning and the purpose that God has for you, you're cut off from all that. From being the masterpiece that you were designed to be, that you were made to be. And it's tragic. And in some ways, the tragedy for the Gentiles, it's even compounded. Because they're looking over there and they're seeing these people who ought to have it together better. They ought to be the light. And they're just looking down their noses at them. The Jews were God's chosen people, you know. His chosen nation. The Gentiles didn't have that. They could not say that about themselves. They were excluded from Jewish citizenship. So they worshipped a pantheon of gods. I mean, you look at it. The, 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 the Greeks had their list of gods. The Romans had their list of gods. The Persians had their list of gods. You go through the nation. They all had their list of gods, and all those gods were as irritable and as undependable as they were. Why? Because they created the gods themselves. The, these lists of gods, they don't think of these gods in terms of being loving or being compassionate or merciful or just or consistent. That They had no reason to love their gods they didn't feel any sense of belonging to their gods. It was just a system that they had created. And we, we think of these people as these religious people with all these gods. They were mostly, you read about it, they're mostly just functioning agnostics. 
They know it's just myth and whatever, and there's not this real allegiance to the gods. I mean, they, they talk about it to pacify the gods, whatever, but they're, they're mainly just functioning agnostics. Why? Because they were without hope. These were gods that they created, and they looked like them. They acted like them, ultimately. Paul says that more than that, though, the Gentiles were also foreigners of the covenants. These agreements that God made with, with people, that God made with Abraham, and then Jacob, and then Moses, and then David. These agreements that bound God to act in a certain way to his people, as long as his people acted and responded to him the way they were supposed to. So every obedient Israelite had a hope. Every obedient Israelite, they knew, hey, there's still hope. Even if they strayed from that hope, that they could come back and they could return. Why? Because God made this covenant. And because God made it, the covenant was dependable. It was as dependable as he was. Why? Because he's the one who made it. And so the, the Israelites, they had all this. They, they had the promises, the, the sacrifices, right? Every, every Israelite knew that if you were burdened by guilt of sin, of something like that, that they could come. And if they offered the sacrifice in the prescribed way, that their guilt could be alleviated. It could be eased. Why? Because they had a sacrificial system. They knew what they had to do in order to demonstrate their faith. The guilt would be gone. The the Gentiles didn't have any of that. You know, the, the Israelites, they had the promise of a Messiah. Every Israelite knew, no matter how bad things got right now, that God one day, he was going to send Messiah. And then everything would be okay. Even if the nation forgot God and turned away from God, God would not cut them off. They had this promise of Messiah that would one day come and restore his people. The Gentiles, they didn't have that. That they were apart from God, without hope. They had no such hope. This is the great contrast between the Gentiles who are living in their darkness without hope, their lives ruled by chaotic whims of unreliable, undependable, irritable gods. They had no solution to the problem of sin and shame. They were subjects to violence and cruelty and warfare. It dominated the Gentile world immorality. They were strangers in the world without God and without hope. Paul says that's not the end of the story, though, for you Gentiles. He says you are brought near through the blood of Christ. And I think Paul uses his words, language here very carefully. Notice he does not say through the death of Christ. He says through the blood of Christ. Why, it's possible to die and it not be bloody, you know. But Jesus, he didn't just pass like peaceably in the night and everything was okay. No, no, Paul uses the term blood here to show us, to remind us of the violent death that Jesus died. This death that was painful and gory and ugly and revolting. How he was tortured and beaten and then with his body writhing in pain, naked. He was hammered to this rough cross and then thud in the ground. Just this bone-wrenching thud as, as, the, as his body would have shaken as the cross was dropped into the ground. The blood of Jesus streaming down his face, his arms, his sides, staining the cross, staining the ground beneath him. You see, Paul is reminding us of the bloody death of Jesus, not, not this peaceful death. And why? Because violence is the end result of godlessness. 
Uh, You trace it through. Violence is always the final expression of a godless society. And that was the case for the Gentile society. And God wants us to see that when we have done our worst, when we have sunk to our lowest, expressed in the most violent hatred and sadistic cruelty, when we have tortured and impaled innocence, personified Jesus Christ, God is still there reaching out in love, ready to forgive. And he calls us who are far off from him, and he draws us to himself through the blood of Jesus. Not, not just the death, but through, the, through his blood. And this is the wonder of God's grace, isn't it? The, the great paradox of Christianity, that in the midst of our violence and our hatred, he sends mercy and love. In the midst of our sin and shame, he sends innocence and purity. In, in our darkness, he sends light. In our death and corruption, God sends resurrection and life. This is the great irony that we who were dead in our sins are now alive because of God the Son, that his blood makes us clean. We are no longer strangers in darkness. We're now children of light. Through his violent death, Jesus is our peace. These two things that don't quite seem to go together go together in Christianity. And notice the peace that Paul's referring to here. It's not a peace between us and God. Okay, you, it's, it's not the peace that, that Jesus gives between us and God. The peace that Paul's referring to here is the peace between Jew and Gentile. This is the great message. This is the gospel of Gentile inclusion. And I want you to notice that you're, if you're in conflict with anyone, maybe someone at your job, someone in your home, some family member, somebody in your neighborhood, whoever, if you're in conflict with anyone, this is the way of peace. Because notice, the peace Jesus brought in that day was between Jew and Gentile. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, just to put it in like other terms, maybe you can think of uh, like the Nazi Holocaust leader guy and the Jewish slave. Or you think of the slave and the slave master. You, th- you think of the two polar opposites that you could possibly get where one another just hate each other. This is it. This is the Jew and Gentile relationship at that time. And he's able to take these two extreme parties and make peace. I mean, Jesus shows up and you look at it in this passage. The origin of peace is Jesus. That's where it comes from. Paul starts with a definition of peace here. And true peace is oneness. See, this is critical, foundational truth. True peace is oneness. Until we understand that true peace is oneness, our understanding and experience of peace will always be superficial and temporary at best. Is it peace when two warring countries lay down their arms and say, hey, we're not going to fight anymore? Don't get me wrong. Hey, it's better not to have like warfare and people shooting at one another than a war going on But that's not the peace that Paul's talking about until there is oneness. Is it true peace when former friends are now engaged in this war of words and they're gossiping and slandering one another behind their backs, but now they're able to live civil towards one another, maybe just kind of avoid each other? Certainly it's better that they're civil rather than yelling and slandering, but that's not peace. 
the way Paul describes it, until there is oneness. Peace is oneness and harmony. It is sharing the enjoyment and sharing the pains and the suffering, sharing the good things of life with each other. Able to be happy for the one who's going through great stuff, even if your life is tough. Able to feel sorry for someone when their life is rough, even if yours is great. See, Paul says the origin of that shared enjoyment, that oneness and harmony is Jesus. In order to live at peace with people, you must be at peace with Jesus. That, that's the beginning point. Only when you have his peace can you truly begin to settle the conflict around you. He is the origin of peace. Why? Because we're not even at peace with ourselves. You know, I've told you before, I, I, I'm not even consistent with my own self. I change my mind all the time, right? We're, we're not at peace with ourselves. Only Jesus brings the peace. People pay a lot of money for counseling. They, they want to go and they want to have somebody, counselors, and hey, I'm thankful for counselors. I am, godly ones. And they want tips who can temporarily make things better. But if you're really struggling in conflict issues, conflict with others, your first stop should be the church, to, to seek counseling here from the church. Why? Because the church knows that the origin of peace is Jesus. And without Jesus, the peace that you get is superficial and temporary at best. Paul describes also the process of peace. He said that Jesus broke down the wall of hostility, separating Jew and Gentile. This is a picture of the Jewish temple that contained this dividing wall that the, the Gentiles, they were confined to the outer courts. Okay, they, they weren't allowed to go to the inner courts. That area was only for the Jews. And there was actually a sign on the wall that promised death for any non-Jew who would pass by that area and enter into the inner courts. So, I mean, you talk about intense hatred and cruelty and, and jealousy. I mean, this, this promoted all of that, this hostility that, that was created because of this. God's solution to fulfill the law by giving the Jew and the Gentiles what they both really needed, grace, mercy, forgiveness. And what he did is he tore down the wall. He himself took these two and made one. If you really want peace, you have to remove self-righteousness. You have to remove arrogance. You have to remove jealousy. And you have to focus on the peace, the forgiveness, the grace that Jesus gives. It's only when, when both parties can do that that true peace exists, that true peace can be found. And you notice what happens next? God creates in himself one man out of two. These two seemingly polar opposites where this wall of hostility once existed, that God does what only he could do, what no man could ever do. And the new man Paul refers to here, it's the church. That's us. It's, it's the church. You see, we are his masterpiece. The church is the picture of what God can do. The, the church is neither new Jew or Gentile. The church is made. It's made to be a multi-ethnic, multi-economic, multi-generational expression of the peace that's found only in Jesus. We should be a testimony to our culture. The people from all ethnicities, people from all socioeconomic backgrounds, people from all ages, we can gather together here in unity 
an expression of the love that we have for our God because he first loved us. This is the church. And this is what unity and fellowship ought to look like. We know what it looks like in family. We've all seen it in family, right? I mean, imagine with me for a moment that there's a family and they get together and they have lunch every afternoon or or once a week, every Sunday afternoon. Okay, the whole family's invited. Grandma, grandpa, parents, got teenagers, kids, everybody. They all come together every Sunday afternoon and they they have lunch together. So they're together, they're having lunch. Everyone's at the table. Mom says, hey, food's ready. We're ready to eat. And they look around, and the teenage boy, I'm just going to pick on the teenage boys, okay? But the teenage boy, he's not there. The little kid says, hey, I, I think he's up in his room playing video games. You know what happens, right? Dad gets up from the table, and he goes, up to the, he goes upstairs to find the boy and see what's going on. He says, hey, mom made lunch. It's, it's family meal. We all get together. We all eat together. What, what are you doing? And he says, well, mom made meatloaf. I don't really like meatloaf. I'd rather just stay in my room and play games today. How does the dad respond to that? You know, we all know how he responds. No, you're part of the family. This is what the family does. You got to come downstairs. You got to be with the family. You got to eat with the family. And then the dad explains, you know what's more? Next week, we're having pizza. You love pizza, don't you? Boy says, yeah, pizza's my favorite. I can't wait for next week. I'm I'm ready for the pizza. Dad says, you know who doesn't like pizza? Grandma. Grandma doesn't like pizza. Gives her heartburn. Do you think she's going to skip the family meal because she doesn't like pizza? Because it gives her heartburn? No. She's not going to miss it. Why? Because this is what the family does. The family gathers together and sets aside our preferences and enjoys the oneness of being family. This is what we do in the church. I don't care if the music style isn't my favorite. I'm with the body, worshiping together. I don't care if I didn't really want to go through Ephesians this year. You know, I was hoping you'd take us through the book of Revelation. No, I'm going, I'm coming, and I'm studying together with the family because this is what the family does. This is what we do. And can you imagine all of the preferences that had to be set aside for the Jews and Gentiles to gather and worship together to become one church? I mean, they couldn't agree on what they would eat for a potluck, you know? And they're looking at each other, oh man, you brought that? You can't eat that food. No, all those walls had to be set aside. The clothes that they wore, the music they liked, the way they talked, all these preferences, all these cultural things, they all had to be set aside. They couldn't complain about the meatloaf or the pizza. They had to focus on the unity and being together and the testimony that that creates to the watching world. In fact, it is the diversity of our preferences, of our people, the diversity in the family that makes the family stronger, you know. It's when people can look and say, wait, I don't see how the two of y'all would go together. I don't see how a church could be made up of this kind of people and that kind of people. That doesn't make sense to me. And y'all love each other? Y'all actually get a, you enjoy worshiping God with them? 
you know, I mean, you got way more money than they do. You, you really want to sit next to them? They don't look like you. They don't talk like you. They do different things for fun than you do. And y'all still gather together? Yes, and that testimony makes the church stronger. It is our unity, even expressed through our diversity, that strengthens the church. When the church all looks the same, that's just, I'm just building a church for preference. I can go to the YMCA and do that. It is the oneness that is found in Jesus that speaks to the greatness of our God. When we're able to lay aside everything else and say, I just want to worship Jesus. And in fact, if there's things at the church that they don't really line up with my preferences, that's a good thing. If the church met all your preferences, that actually would be scary. This church that Paul is, is writing to here in Ephesus, it was a church of two like warring peoples coming together in unity. And Paul says, this is peace. This is oneness. This is harmony. Look at who you are now, Gentiles. And this is specifically to the Gentiles. Why? Because they are the ones who would feel awkward. They are the ones who would feel left out. And Paul says, you're no longer foreigners and aliens. You aren't strangers anymore. We all know what it's like to be a stranger. We all know what it's like to carry that tray of food into a full cafeteria and not know anybody. Have everyone else talking and laughing and, and us, you know, we don't know where, where to go. Maybe you know what it's like to be a foreigner, to go to a foreign country and everyone else is speaking a different language and they're wearing different kinds of clothes and they've got different, a different currency that they use. You're unfamiliar. You're awkward. You, you, don't, you don't know how things work. And Paul says, Gentiles, while that was true of you at one point, you are now in Christ. And being in, in Christ changes everything. You have a different reality. You are now a full citizen in the kingdom of God. Did you see that? You are now fellow citizens with God's people. Your citizenship has been changed. You have a new authority. You have new kingdom responsibilities and kingdom privileges. But you aren't just citizens. Paul, Paul goes beyond that because a citizen would be enough, right? I mean, citizens of heaven, citizens of God's family, hey, that's enough. Just let me in, God, right, with this proper understanding of who God is. If I can just be in the kingdom, I'll be a janitor, I'll scrub toilets, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But if I can get in. But Paul says it's better than that, Gentiles. It's better than that. He says you're members of God's household. Members of his family, co-equals. Gentiles too, that's you and me, probably most of us are now sons and daughters of the king. This intimate family of God, we're a part of it. John marveled at it when he wrote his letters. He said, how could it be that we should be called children of God? How great is God's love that we'd be called this? And yes, that is what we are, John says. And then Paul tells the Gentiles how secure their standing is. He says, don't forget, if you're ever tempted to think, well, maybe you could be excommunicated from the family. Maybe you could be the black sheep who's kind of shunned away. 
Paul says, no, no, don't, don't think that because we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. The image here is of this beautiful building, but it's not a dead building. Daniel, when he was with our group, he, he, he told us that God likes, that, that man, we like to build things out of, out of dead things, you know. We use, we use wood, we use metal, we use whatever. We, we build things out of dead things. But when God builds stuff, he always uses living things. When, when God builds his house, he, use, he, he builds it using living things. It's this living, growing habitation of God. It is the body of God, the place where God himself dwells. And you go through this and you say, okay, we're citizens, we're members of his family, and then we're like this building. And at first, when you first read it, it almost seems like the building is the most, you know, the least intimate, the most cut off. But then you think about it and you step back and you say, whoa, what could be more intimate than this? That this is a building made up of people bound together where Jesus himself dwells, where God himself dwells. See, Paul's reminding us just how close we are to God, a God of power, a God of might, a God of love, how we're intimately related to him and bound to him as we are to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, as he's building us up into this great building, an eternal dwelling place for a watching world to see. Paul has this great vision of the church. It's a big vision Because he has a big vision of God. A big vision of God leads to a big vision for the church. But sometimes we shrink back because we have a small vision of God and we develop a small vision for the church. And we substitute this living building made up of people for a dead building that we just come to. And we call that church We celebrate this place where our diversity is expressed in unity. And we want a place where our preferences can be met. Where we want to like everything that's happening. We settle for volunteering. We look for capable leaders and we say, hey, looks like you're building something good there. Can I help? I'll volunteer a few hours a month and that'll be spiritual maturity. But when we have a big view of God, we have a big, view for, a big view of the church. And there's this shift that takes place. We shift from more volunteers to more masterpieces. And here's the difference. A volunteer says, I'll serve a few hours a month. And that's ministry. A masterpiece says, ministry is all of life. And it happens most where I live, work, study, and play. A volunteer says, hey, build something cool, put some good program together, and I will help. A masterpiece says, look, there's all this brokenness in the culture. Can you equip me so that I can go help? A volunteer says, hey, where's a program at the church where I can join so that I can share Jesus? A masterpiece primarily invests in people in the community and gets to know them and builds relationships with them and goes to their house and invites them to your house 
so that you can share Jesus with them. See, a masterpiece isn't meant to be left in the warehouse. An, an artist doesn't put this great thing together, this great picture, great painting, great sculpture, whatever, to leave it in the warehouse to say, hey, come, come to the warehouse. No, an artist does his work so that his work can be displayed to get out of the warehouse and into the culture and into the society and to be the masterpiece that we're made to be for the benefit of others. See, this is a much bigger vision. And this is the vision that Paul has for the church because he knows how God designed his church. So we, we aren't just thinking how to run the church. We're dreaming about how to fulfill God's kingdom mission. To be these everyday missionaries that we were just commissioned to be just a couple weeks ago. And that we return every week to this gathering of missionaries and we're sharing about the people who we're investing in. Those areas of culture that we're focused on. That we're bringing Jesus there. We're sharing Jesus in these pockets of society, in these pockets of culture. Why? Because you have access to people that the rest of us don't. God's made you to be a masterpiece in, in some area of culture that the rest of us could never get to. And anything less than that, looking for anything less, is like that temporary superficial piece. You show up at a program, when we settle for volunteers instead of masterpieces, we show up at a program, and it's a good program. And we're excited for it, we're not saying don't do them at all, but... We show up there and the program ends and we go back. And then after a while, you do that enough times, you start to scratch your head and start to wonder, is this all there is? Is this really all the church is about? Surely we were made for more. That's the message of Ephesians. We were made for more. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your grace, in your goodness, you made two who seemed so totally polar opposites one so that your glory could be displayed. So that the world can look and they can know there's no way that the Jews and the Gentiles could reconcile themselves to one another. The only way something like that could happen is if some kind of supernatural force came in. Well, God, you are that supernatural presence. You are the origin of peace. God, thank you for the peace that you've brought to our own lives. And thank you for the peace that you bring to the lives all around us. Thank you for the peace of this church that we can gather together with all of our different preferences and all of our different idiosyncrasies. And the, we've all got issues, but God, you, you bring us together as one. And we can enjoy harmony and oneness here because of what you provide. God, help us to show that to the world around us. Help us not just to live in the warehouse, but to get out in the places where we live, work, study, and play. And be the everyday missionaries you've called us to be. God, we need your help to do this, so we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit, and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.